If you weren't with us last week, I'm going to be doing a second part on the topic of biblical counseling. And so the idea here is I've been preaching on some various distinctives of our church, and we're going to be kicking off a new counseling center that starts the first week of January. And so I'm just trying to make sure that our whole body is on board, understanding these important principles and uh, ready to live them out as we serve in this ministry together. So why don't you pray with me, and then we'll dive into our time together. Father, thank you for this morning. I'm so thankful for our church and the songs that we can sing in the heart of our of our leaders here just to be in in dev, devotional worship and, and and adoration to christ our savior thank you for seating us at your table bless this time in the preaching of your word that you would grow and change us to make us more like christ and it's in his name we pray amen well imagine that you notice that there are some termites in your house and so you decide to go online and check out what exterminators are in your area. And you find three different exterminators that you want to check, uh, check the price on and kind of check their assessment. And so you call each one. The first exterminator comes over and examines your house. And he says, well, it's not, it's not that bad. We caught it just in time. A, a simple spraying will take care of the problem. And so just in order to do diligence, you call the second exterminator and he comes over and says, well, look, it's a little worse than it looks. Um, but if, if we, is, you know, there are some termites that have infested parts of the ceiling and uh, certain parts of the walls, but we think we can still get to it. We can fix it by replacing some of the boards. And so in order to, again, be very thorough, you call that third exterminator anyway. And he comes over and he says this, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but termites have totally infested your entire house. The only way to get rid of them is to tear your house down and to build another one. Now, you think about that illustration in some ways, you're like, that's a bummer. But and in other ways, you need the truth. And if termites have infested the whole house, you don't want to keep patching it up if you just need to build a new one. Now, this illustration is, I believe, a good picture of how psychology has infested the church. The assessment of the third exterminator accurately pictures the amount of damage that secular psychology has done in the church and what must be done in order to repair the change. Total infestation requires total demolition. And in our first message on biblical counseling, we investigated the house of Christian psychology through the lens of scripture and found it not only to be totally infested with atheistic and humanistic philosophies and practices, but we were also reminded that there's really only one solution. And the solution is Christ. The solution is coming to Christ and being changed by Christ and living for Christ. The solution is not to try to repair the house, but rather to build a new one. And in our first Heading of our four part outline last week, we just looked at this introduction to biblical counseling. You see there in your notes, we talked a little bit about how psychology is diametrically opposed to the Bible. And last week, we discussed four reasons for that that psychology was wrong because of who founded it. It was founded by unbelievers who did not know or love God, who desired to set up their own religion of reaching men's souls without the gospel. We also talked about how psychology was wrong because of what it teaches. It doesn't teach that men and women are sinners before an angry God who need to repent and to be restored in a right relationship through the gospel. But rather, it teaches that you be who you are. 
And whatever that is, learn to live with it with a positive view of yourself. We also talked about last week that psychology is wrong because of how it works. It doesn't work through internal transformation of the heart through the gospel, but it works rather by behavioral modifications of changing the outside. And then also we talked about how psychology is wrong because it hasn't worked. I mean, it just, it doesn't work. It's a broken cistern that holds no water. And the only thing that can really change anybody for the rest of their life and certainly for eternity is the gospel. So we talked about that for all these reasons that psychology cannot be integrated with Christianity. And so we've got to build a new house. We can't take the wisdom of the world and mix it with the wisdom of God. Oil and water do not mix. And so this morning we're going to find that the Bible really is sufficient for all we need. I mean, if we're going to tear down that house of psychology, then we better build something better. We better build something that we have more confidence in and that we have more conviction about than what man has to offer. And so the first and the most important step in building a house is to lay the foundation. And if it's not laid correctly, then the rest of the house will be unstable. And so the same basic principle applies in constructing a a, a, a model for counseling. The first and most important step is to lay a strong biblical foundation. So that's what we want to do this morning by looking at our second heading. Number two, what is the foundation to biblical counseling? And the following that we'll be giving this morning are eight foundational principles of counseling. And these eight principles form an accurate foundation of which to build a counseling ministry. Here's the first one. Number one, the sufficiency of the word of God. So obviously, biblical counseling is built on the Bible. It's not built on man. It's not built on man's wisdom. It's not built on research. It's built on the true divine revelation of God, the Holy Bible. You're there already, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, last week we talked about how some psychologists would say that if you're sick physically, then you need to go see a doctor. And if you have questions about God or faith, then you should go see a pastor. But if you're struggling with internal turmoil, of an emotional or psychological nature, then you need to see a psychologist. And what I'm saying this morning is don't see a psychologist, see rather a Christian who knows and understands the Bible, because the only thing that will really help you is the word of God. The sufficiency of the word of God is proclaimed boldly by the Holy Spirit who inspired the word of God. Notice again, it says all scriptures breathe out, inspire, breathe out, utterly given by God. And it's profitable for counseling. That's what teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness That's what those things are. That's biblical counseling that you're teaching somebody what the word of God says. You're reproving or rebuking somebody who's living in unrepentant sin. You're correcting them by showing them the right way with God's help to bring about change. And you're training them about what it's all about. And notice verse 17 says that it's in this way that the man of God is what? Complete. It doesn't say But the man of God is still incomplete and therefore needs secular psychology in order to really be equipped for certain works. 
It's not what the scripture says. It says, no, no, it's all in the Bible. The Bible's sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. There's not one problem that you would ever have that you would come to the Bible and say, ah, there is no biblical principle or truth whatsoever that will help me. Therefore, I must go seek secular thoughts on the issue to help me with my problem. I mean, the Bible is the only inerrant, infallible, and authoritative book in the universe. It is totally sufficient. It is complete. It is God's word. So either we believe what it says about counseling or we open up ourselves to all kinds of corrupt thinking. Psychology is not necessary or needed for the Christian. There is no technique or therapy or program that holds a key to your recovery. The scripture is the only manual that we need for counseling. The scriptures don't need to be supplemented or integrated with anything else. The word of God is the primary means by which we change. In fact, you could just jot down Second Peter 1, 3 that reminds us that it's Christ and his word that brings about all that we need for life and godliness. You're familiar with this passage. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And so what we're saying is that all that we need for life and godliness are found in Christ and in his word. I mean, it was Jesus himself who said in John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so the way that you're sanctified, the way that you change to become more like Christ is not in the secular Uh, research of the world, but rather in the divine revelation of God's holy word. The Bible is the key to spiritual growth. The key to counseling is to know the word of God and to help the counselee apply God's word in their life. So better than taking a dose of medication or better than going to a secular psychologist would be coming to God's word and receiving a regular dose of the living word of God which can bring about change in your life on a day-by-day basis. The second principle for counseling would be this. It's built on the supremacy of the glory of God. If you'd like, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 10.31. Most of you know the passage already. So whether you eat or drink and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so what I'm saying here is that the supreme purpose of all things is the glory of God. That includes counseling. When you're counseling somebody as a Christian to a Christian, you're to point them to the glory of God. Counseling must be God-centered and not man-centered. That is, it must be focused on God and his word instead of on ultimately the counselee. And you say, well, Adam, what are you talking about? Well, in many secular psychological uh, settings, the idea is that the counselee comes in and spends all the time talking. And then the counselor just says, hey, that's great. I'm glad you figured it out. I mean, you've seen the movie, What About Bob, right? He comes in, he's like, I'm struggling with this. And he's like, define this. And so he talks about that. And then he says, define this. And he talks about that some, define this, right? And it's almost like they just kind of prod uh, people to talk about what they want to talk about and see, well, you see there, there's your problem. All right, let's, let's, uh, I'll see you again next week. Now, not every counselor does that, but you get the point. The, the point of counseling isn't just to let a counselee talk and talk and talk. I mean, to some degree it is. Uh, let me just be clear here. Uh, We're going to talk later in the message about receiving data, asking good questions, getting to the heart of the matter. So, yeah, in so many ways, you're going to ask them a ton of questions. But I'm just saying at some point, as counseling moves on, you've got to do some instruction for the glory of God. And if the counselee comes in and all they want to do is talk, talk, talk and not receive instruction for the glory of God, then what they're actually concerned about is talking about themselves 
instead of listening to what does God, God's word say about my life, my situation, my problem. Because the most important thing in counseling is about what that person's relationship to God is like. And so in counseling, no matter what's going on, we're talking about the glory of God and the greatness of God. Sometimes I'll even assign A.W. Pink's book, The Attributes of God, or Tozier's Knowledge of the Holy, so that the counselee is growing and be like, wow, it's all about God and his glory. And I'm so focused on my problem that I, that I need to have a better perspective. I mean, if you don't have any other idea where to go in counseling, I take them to Second Corinthians 5, 9, which just simply says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. It's our ambition in life to please God. And so it's not about me and my problem so much as it's about focusing on God and his glory. Number three, the centrality of the son of God. Here, you could jot down Colossians 1, 28. It's him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. So our goal is to lead people to Jesus. Biblical counseling is about evangelism. It starts with people coming in who aren't sure what to do in their problem. And so you begin to share with them the solution is Christ. And when the person says, well, I'm not interested in Christ. I just want to change my problem. The response is then I can't help you. You're you're welcome to go to uh, secular counseling if you want. But if you want biblical counsel, which, by the way, we have them read through a description of what biblical counseling is before they come to our counseling center. So they already know what they're getting into. It's not a bait and switch. We have them fill out information. They read. Here's what we stand on. Here's what we believe. Here's how we're going to counsel you. But sometimes still they come in. They're like, no, 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 I don't want the Bible. I just need help on my marriage to which I'll just say, well, I I can't help you. I, I can't help you in your marriage, but I can help you come to Christ and he can help you. In your marriage, because it's all about knowing Christ. It's about his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross, which is the real key to counseling. His death broke the power of sin and provides us freedom from sin. And so we no longer have to live as slaves to sin, but can now overcome every sin. Who Christ is and what he has done is what makes change possible. I mean, how many times do people come in and they say, well, I've been this way my whole life or these bad things happened to me. And so that just made me who I am to which I'll respond. If they're in Christ, that it's Christ who makes you who you are. Christ can change you. I don't care if you've been this way 30 years. Jesus Christ changes people and he could change you if you look to Christ. So Christ not only makes counseling possible, he is the ultimate goal of biblical counseling. I mean, the goal is to become more like Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans eight twenty eight. I use this passage in almost every counseling scenario because there's a general principle here that we must not overlook. As soon as I say turn to Romans eight twenty eight, most people who have had any experience in the Bible roll their eyes. They're like, oh, pastor, you're going to tell me God's in control of everything. Well, I got a real problem and I don't want to just hear about the sovereignty of God. Well, that might show you a lot about the counselee if they respond that way. Uh, But, you know, typically I would say if somebody's in an emergency of great trial, I probably don't go to Romans 8.28. But most of counseling is a chronic problem that's been going on for weeks and months and years. And so I think going to Romans 8.28 is the best place to go to help them understand this truth. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Now, if you have an NASB in front of you, it obviously reads, God causes all things to work together for good, right? But it's the same truth. We believe in the sovereignty of God that he ordains and brings about all things that happen in life. There, he is the ultimate cause of all causes. Uh, so with that theological underpinning, the idea is, do we believe as Christians the verse is really true? Do all things really work together for good? I mean, in theory, we all say, yeah, yeah, it works for good. But what if you get that phone call about your teenager who wrecked the car? Is your first response, oh, this is going to be good. Or is your first response like, did you look both ways before you crossed the street? I mean, the idea is like, it doesn't always feel like all things work together for good. What if you show up to work tomorrow and your boss pulls a Donald Trump on you and says, you're fired. Are you, is you immediately going to be thinking, wow, this is good. It's going to be a great Thanksgiving. You know, I mean, you, you understand that we know how to give the Sunday school church answer. But there's something in us that says, uh-uh-uh, that's not good. That's just not good. What if you get the horrible news from the doctor on the phone that, that diagnoses you with terminal cancer? Are you going to get off the phone thinking, this is good? Probably not. And so counsel these ask these same questions. Well, I'm here with a great crisis of either depression or divorce or a rebellious kid or I have ADD or whatever their problem is, right? They're going to come and say, how can this be good? This is what I have. Help me. And so I try to just remind them, let God is at work and he's at work in your life and in this situation and in this trial for good. And the good is he wants to change you to make you more like Christ. And so that's why you then look at verse 29 and say uh, what that verse says for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what is he saying? God is causing all things to work together for good, even bad things. It doesn't say only the good things work for good, but the bad things work for bad. That's not biblical truth. All things work for good. How, how, does, how can good become of it? Because he wants to use that trial, that difficulty to conform you, to make you more like Christ to ha- allow you to see that all you really need in this life is Christ and that he can change you and conform you. And oftentimes he uses the crucible of trials to change us so that we can understand all I need is Christ. And then that begins to give the counselee hope. Like, oh, okay, now I'm starting to see some good. I can become more Christ-like. Would you help me grow to be more like Christ in my broken marriage? Would you help me to grow to be more like Christ even though I have a kid in jail? Would you help me grow to be more like Christ even though I'm feeling really depressed and I can't hardly get out of bed? Help me to become more like Christ. And then we implement some of the truths of God's word in biblical counseling. Well, let me move on. The fourth principle in counseling is this, the efficacy of the spirit of God. So here we're talking about the Holy Spirit, right? It's, it's God, it's God's word, it's Christ, it's the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So I'm just reminding here that in counseling, the Holy Spirit is alive and well. And the Holy Spirit is at work. You can't counsel without the Holy Spirit. You're trusting in the Spirit of God to work through the Word of God to bring about true change. It's the Holy Spirit who is ultimately responsible for salvation and for sanctification. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts us and grants us repentance and teaches us all things and helps us to change. 
And so you want the Holy Spirit to be at work. Consider Consider Ephesians 6, 17 that says that we ought to uh, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So if you take the word of God out of your hand, then you don't have the sword of the spirit. That's the only offensive weapon in the armor of God passage. And so the idea is that the Holy Spirit uses God's word, which is why in counseling, I usually counsel with nothing's on my desk except my Bible. I have my Bible typically open to whatever passage I was reading last. So as the counselee comes in, they know I'm coming from this book. I don't have a DSM-4 or 5, the Diagnostic Statistics Manual of Psychiatric Diseases, but rather I have the Bible. That's what's on my desk, one book. And so as they come in, I want them to know that I'm going to be asking and talking and interacting and say, hey, open open your Bible. I usually ask them to bring a Bible. If not, I pull one off my shelf, turn it around, say, hey, open it up to Romans 8.28. Let's talk about this. Open it up to whatever passage that you want to provide for them because you know that the Holy Spirit of God is going to work through the Word of God to bring about change in in that person's heart. And so our limited knowledge and experience uh, are not uh, our only resources. The biggest resort Resource, I would say, is God's word and the power of the spirit of God. Let me move on to the fifth principle of counseling would be this. You need to make sure that your counselee understands the depravity of man. Genesis one twenty seven says we're created in the image of God. But it's Romans 5.12 that says that uh, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, in counseling, you got to make sure that people understand you're not just a, 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 a evolved animal that acts on animal instincts. And so that's why you do what you do. No, you need to have a healthy, robust anthropology that you came from God, that God created you and he created you to have a relationship with him. And the problem is sin entered the world. And so we've been separated from God and you must be restored in a right relationship With God through repentance and through faith and through God's divine work of grace in your life. And the problem is people rather think of themselves as, well, I'm pretty good. Or this happened to me. It's not my fault. Or they want to find some other answer than the fact that they were born in sin. Listen to what one biblical counselor has written on this. Quote, man is not a victim, but a violator. Not sick, but sinful. Not codependent, dysfunctional, or deprived, but depraved. His problem is not self-protection, but self-promotion. His problem is not low self-esteem, but high self-esteem. He does not struggle with unfulfilled needs, but with unfaithful deeds. Close quote. Well, I think that kind of describes it for us. Too many people have been so psychologized that we always want to blame shift everything on everything else instead of understanding that I'm in sin and I need to repent and I need to come to Christ. And even if it's something bad that happened to you, you understand every counselee comes in and the problem they're dealing with is either a result of their own sin or it's something that did happen to them that they couldn't help, but they responded in a sinful way to that circumstance. So either way, the problem's sin. Either I'm suffering from my own sin, and this is the consequence. So I'm a drunkard. I committed adultery. I, you know, I stole money from the bank, and now I'm in this real mess. I got fired at work because of my negligence of, of my work ethic. And so they get depressed, and so they, they, they need help. Or it could be someone comes in, and they're abused. Or it's the innocent party in the divorce 
due to adultery or something of that nature. And so the idea is that you still have to respond biblically. And if you respond out of hate or out of bitterness or out of wanting to, to, uh, to fight back and have revenge, then you don't understand that you still have a problem that you need to work on because you, you are uh, depraved. And without Christ, you can't change and grow in this situation. Let me move on. The sixth principle that counseling should be built on would be this. Number six, the sovereignty of salvation. And so here I'm just trying to stress again the fact that they must be saved. They must understand that it's not about me working hard to earn favor with God. And therefore I'll be a Christian. But it's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. So you're just trying to make sure that your counselee understands that It's the lack of salvation in the heart of a person that oftentimes is the problem. Meaning this, sometimes I'm counseling with somebody, I'm two weeks in, I'm four weeks in, I'm five weeks in, and I realize, you know what, it's this person doesn't understand the gospel. Which is why we encourage our counselees to start with the gospel, so that when somebody comes in, oftentimes, again, they'll come in sharing their problems. This is what's going on. We're having a horrible marriage. Here's all the problems, and they dump it out on you. And then I just simply stop and say, hey, look, I I don't know how to tell you this, but your problem is actually way bigger than you thought. You thought you had a marriage problem. Uh, The truth is you've sinned against a holy God, and you deserve hell and eternal torment forever. And I just kind of stop there for a moment. They start squirming like, hey, man, I thought you were going to help me with our marriage. And I'm like, I'm trying to help you. But it starts with you looking to Christ. And so the solution is way greater than you thought. You could turn to Christ this day, repent of your sin, embrace and believe in the gospel. And God will save you for all eternity. And not only will God save you, but he'll begin to change you and to conform you into the image of his son. And he'll give you great hope in in life's worst trial. Let's talking to them about the sovereignty of God and doing the work of salvation in the heart of sinners. Well, the seventh principle in counseling would be the primacy of the local church. Acts 20, 28 talks a little bit about Paul addressing the Ephesian elders where he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Here's the deal. Counseling, biblical counseling, is to take place in the local church, not in a counseling center. When I was living and working as a physician's assistant in Savannah, Georgia, for four years, I was serving at my local church, the Baptist church in town. Our Baptist church, along with all the other churches, gave money to support the counseling center which was Christian psychology, and it was called the Barnabas Center. And so all the churches in our town, instead of their pastors and their own church counseling the issues from God's word, would refer everybody to the counseling center. And the problem with the counseling center is it was staffed with men and women with psychological degrees who were from varied theological backgrounds. So you had one from the Methodist church and one from the liberal Presbyterian church, one from the Baptist church, you know, one from the Episcopal church. And those are the counselors. And I'm not saying that's all bad. If they all stand in Christ and if they all believe in the gospel, I trust that there's some redeemable thing that could happen there. Right. But the idea is if you're not careful, you begin to get into like, well, what, what do we teach on this? Or what do we teach on that? And, and so the, 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 the wisdom would be let a church hold a counseling center within the church so that they are, have some consistency with what we believe the Bible teaches about complementarianism, for example, or what the Bible teaches about 
discipline or what the Bible teaches about sexuality. Because some of those different denominations have different views that it might actually affirm a sinful activity that's happening in somebody's life instead of condemning it as the Bible would and then giving hope about how to bring about true change. And so our conviction is that we want to not practice a parachurch type organization, but rather counseling would take place in the local church. I mean, first of all, every church has a pastor. So at least there's some theologically equipped individual, in this case, a board of elders and additional counselors who are able to counsel and to help somebody. Secondly, the church is filled with believers. What the person needs in changing and growing to become more like Christ is not one meeting One hour, once a week with one person. But what the person needs for change is implementation into a local church body that's thriving and that's loving and serving and practicing the one another's. And so part of our assignment for our counselees is that while they come to counseling during the counseling process, they we ask them to attend our church for one service once a week during the process. Okay, so we don't. We don't demand that they join our church. We don't tell them they have to leave their former church. Uh, We don't tell them that they can't be involved in their other church. We just say, hey, look, you came to us for counseling, and we're happy to counsel you. We want to help you. We're glad you're here. But during the process, part of your homework is we want you to attend at least one service. And what that does for us is that assures us that it gives you a chance to love on them. It gives them a chance to hear a biblical message in case the church they're from doesn't really teach the Bible. But it gives you that opportunity to be looking for visitors who come in and to be thinking, aha, we're starting to see a lot more visitors come to our church. And it's obvious that God's doing a work. So how could I be a part? I'm going to love on these people. I'm going to invite them over for lunch. I'm going to get to know them. I'm going to ask them, how can I be a blessing to you? We're so glad you're here. And you just give them a hug and you embrace them. You might even see a couple come into church with real tension between them. But you're going to go and you're just going to love on them and help them and, and get to know them. That's what a great way for our whole church body to be in involved in helping each other. And then thirdly, I would just say a church has church discipline. So we preached a a message on this just a couple of months ago, but this is biblical counseling with teeth. This is if you're a member of our church or a regular attender and you're living in open, unrepentant sin, then we get involved in what Christ uh, defines for us in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, the steps that a church is to carry out of church discipline. And so that's why counseling needs to take place in a local church setting. And then our eighth principle that counseling should be built on is this. It's about the imminency of Christ's return. And so this whole uh, one is just talking about we have a doctrine that teaches Christ is coming back. And however you want to sort that out may differ. We have a particular view on that. But the most important thing is the idea Christ is coming back, which holds us accountable to live today In light of that day. And so the fact that we have a eschatology of any sort about the return of Christ means that we are now responsible to live because judgment day is coming. Like it's coming. Your life will one day be over. And so realizing that in the counseling room helps us understand that, man, I've got to I've got to change. And so what we've just done and these eight uh, foundational principles are nothing more than the eight major systems of systematic theology. I mean, all we've done in these eight things is we've talked about the theology of God. And we've talked about bibliology, Christology, pneumatology, anthropology, eschatology. We're talking about all these things that you study in seminary and which are also written up in our doctrinal statement. And what we're showing is that biblical counseling is systematized on good, solid biblical theology. 
Before you can get into a methodology of how do I counsel, you have to have a good foundational biblical theology so that you're counseling the right thing. In other words, your theology must control your methodology. And if you don't have good theology, then your counseling will be worldly instead of being wordly. And our desire is to teach God's word and have that have the impact in, in the change of people's life. And so we would say that our method of counseling must be consistent with our theological convictions. Therefore, we're compelled by our theology to reject the methods of secular psychology as broken cisterns that hold no water. And instead, we remain satisfied and committed to the one and only well that God has provided in Christ that contains living water enough to quench your thirst and to fill every broken cistern on the planet. Well, that moves us into our third major heading on biblical counseling. Let's, let's talk about the definition of biblical counseling. I gave this definition to you last time. I just want to explain it a little bit further. We talked about last time that biblical counseling is confronting, admonishing, instructing people with the word of God and the power of the spirit of God to help them what change their thinking and behavior to make them more like Christ for God's glory and their good. Okay. So we're talking about here. The methods of counseling are to help people change. Now, again, in psychology, there's no real goal. I mean, the goal is to help you accept yourself as you are. That would be the goal of psychology. Just have a piece about your present situation and who you are and just accept it as it is. The opposite of that is, though, you need to change. You're a sinner in need of salvation. And with Christ in your heart, he can change you and give you true, lasting satisfaction. And so in order to do that, we do what's called nuthetic counseling. Now, all of you have heard that term, but maybe not everybody knows what it means. You've heard even uh, previously the Biblical Counseling Association that we're in, 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 uh, in working with uh, previously was called NANC, right? The National Association of Nuthetic Counseling. And so that word nuthetic is something we need to talk about. And here it is. B, biblical counseling is often referred to as nuthetic counseling. And here are about seven or eight passages in the Bible that use this word nuthetic. And so biblical counseling is nuthetic counseling. This term comes from the Greek word nuthateo. Okay, it's the Greek word nuthateo where we get nuthetic counseling. And it's a combination of two words. Nuos, which means mind, and tithemi, which means to put into. So literally what we're trying to do in biblical counseling is to put into the mind of somebody God's word. We're trying to put in their mind the word of God. Now, in the Bible, the word mind is also equivalent with the word heart. In other words, mind and heart. Sometimes in our Western culture, we think, well, I know it in my mind, but I don't feel it in my heart. That's not a biblical concept. In the Bible, those words are used interchangeably, that your mind is your heart, is your soul, is your conscience, is your inner man, is your, is your everything. I mean, it's just like the idea of that you're made out of material, flesh and blood that you can see and touch. And immaterial. And it's the immaterial that we're trying to put into that immaterial part of who you really are. God's truth. God's word. So here's how the word nuthetic is used throughout the New Testament. Acts 20, 31. You can turn to some of these if you want. But for the sake of time, I'll read some of them. And then you can maybe look at them later. But Acts 20, 31 says, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So this is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders of how for three years he nuthoteoed them. He admonished them. 
He worked with them by putting into their mind God's truth. Here's how it's used in Romans 15, 14. I myself am satisfied about my brothers that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So in that passage, it's the word nutheteo is translated as instruct. And notice in that passage, it says that you will instruct who? One another. That we're all offering counsel to one another every time we open our mouths. And so we are to be nutheteoing each other or offering admonishment and instruction. 1 Corinthians 4.14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So again, he's writing to the Corinthians. He's like, look, I'm going to correct some of your uh, immoral behavior because I love you. And so I need to admonish you in these areas. Colossians 1.28, him we proclaim warning. That's the word nutheteo, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. I mean, how else do we help people mature if we're not offering them biblical counsel or nuthetic counseling or offering them a warning that if they continue in their unrepentant sin and unbiblical thinking, they'll never find lasting hope and satisfaction. How about Colossians 3.16? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So again, the word nuthoteo used in the idea of us admonishing one another. Same thing in 1 Thess 5, 12 through 14, admonishing each other, admonishing the idle, the encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. 2 Thess 3, 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn, nuthoteo, warn him as a brother. So even in the case of church discipline, in that particular passage, it said, hey, you better warn him. You better offer him biblical counseling that he's got to change. And so here's what we're learning. From these references, we can deduce two things. One, nuthetic simply implies a verbal confrontation for the purpose of change. Now, again, we live in a time where it's not popular to confront somebody and say, you can't do that. As soon as you try to do that in the workplace, you get sued. So the difference between biblical counseling and secular counseling is, look, that's got to stop. And I'm standing with a loving heart from the authority of God's word. I mean, I'm not that strong with every person, right? It just depends on what the sin is and what's going on. Sometimes if they're really rebellious, I'll get in their face and say, hey, dude, you can't keep doing that. Not and claim Christ. If it's somebody who's maybe already broken, it may be much more gentle and kind, right? But the point is, we've got to verbally uh, address what's going on and confront this person for the purpose of change. The second thing we learn from this word, Nuthateo, is that it's bi- this biblical admonition is the duty and the responsibility of both the pastor and every believer. So this isn't just Nuthetic, it's only for pastors and elders and certified biblical counselors. No, the word Nuthateo is used for all Christians to be applying all the time, which means husbands and wives need to be counseling each other daily. Parents need to be counseling their children daily. You and me as members of our church, as we interact in small group, ought to be nuthoteoing each other daily. We're all offering biblical counsel all the time. You say, Adam, I just feel like you're still talking in theory. You're still talking way up here. I need something really practical. All right. Look at point C. Biblical counseling is about identifying and crushing idols of the heart. When it comes to changing to become more like Christ, the question is, where do I change? How do I change? Where is the battle fought? Where must the battle be won? What exactly is it that must change and grow? And the answer to all these questions is the heart. 
It's got to be your heart, which remember is the same thing as your mind, which is the same thing as your inner man. It's that part of you that's really you. That's what's got to change. It's got to happen in the heart. And the Bible talks a lot about the heart. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Jeremiah 17.9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. How about Matthew 7, 20 through 23? Jesus says that it's that he says uh, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. And so what we're saying is this, after examining all the biblical data, we're trying to help this person get down to what is the real idol of the heart. And let me explain how you can help somebody do that. I mean, the idea is there's really a, an idol. Maybe you could think of, you know, in our Western culture, everybody's like, what are you talking about? I don't have an idol. I don't sit down and worship a wooden statue of Buddha. I mean, the closest I get to that is when I walk out of a Chinese restaurant, I might rub his belly just because it's fun. You know, but I don't like, I'm not tempted with like, okay, I'm going to bow down before this idol. So we're talking about idols of the heart, which are desires. And you say, well, well, that could get really complex. Well, it could. I mean, it was church theologian John Calvin that said your heart is like an idol factory and it's constantly putting out idols all the time. But we could also keep it simple by saying that it's probably going to fall into one of three categories. According to first John two fifteen through 17, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. So every desire that you have could be categorized as the lust of the flesh, which would be the controlling desire for sensual pleasure or for ease and comfort or for physical gratification. Or maybe your desire that you're struggling with is the lust of the eyes. And that would be more of the controlling desire for profit and for material things. Or maybe it's the pride of life, which would be the controlling desire to, to, to be great in, in your own view and everybody else cowers and, and capitulates to whatever your view is because you're the one in control. Well, these three desires serve as a good place to identify the idols in a person's heart. And so if you want to just get right down to it, I've suggested here, here's two questions that you could ask to help somebody identify if this is an idol in their heart or not. Okay. So how do you know if something really is an idol? Well, number one, you could ask these questions, or that's one A. What did you have to do to get it? So you can know whether something has actually become an idol if you have to do X in order to get Y. Okay, so the, for example, let's say there's a teenager who says, man, I really want to watch this movie, but it's rated R. My parents won't let me, so whatever. They, I'll get up late at night. They sneak out of the house. They go hang out with their buddy, and they go to the theater to watch the R-rated movie. What just happened? That person demonstrated they are an idol worshiper. Well, what idol did they worship? Well, they worship their idol of entertainment or if the movie was particularly uh, sensual in nature. Could be a lustful desire there. That's why they wanted to go see it and why the parents said no. But the idea is that they wanted it so bad. What did they have to do to get it? They had to disobey God by disobeying their mom and dad 
not following God's clear word of Ephesians 6.1, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And they disobeyed mom and dad to go do what they wanted to do. Now that's demonstrating that that person is actually an idolater. Not only are they rebellious, not only do they have sensual desires that they want to have met, but now they're outwardly rebelling against God because they're worshiping something else. They're worshiping their own desire to do what they want to do. And so one question again you can ask is, well, what did you have to do in order to get that? Help you identify the idol of the heart. The second question is the flip side of that. Well, what did you do? What do you do when you didn't get it? So what did you have to do in order to get it? Or what did you do when you didn't get it? In other words, when you ask mom and dad, hey, can I go watch this movie? It's like Rambo 10 and it's out. And I want to go see it. And your mom and dad are like, nah, that's too bloody. You can't go see that. Then how did you respond? Did you say, but mom, dad, come on. All the other kids are going, you you make me sick. You know, if that's your response, that was still the, that was still the child speaking to the parent, by the way. If that if that's your response, then you're demonstrating that that had become an idol because you either had to sin in order to get what you wanted. Or if you didn't get what you wanted, you responded sinfully. So now we're dealing with here's an idol of the heart. Or let's apply this maybe in marriage. I mean, here's what happens in marriage, right? A husband and wife will come in. They're in conflict. They're upset at each other. You could tell there's a lot of tension in the room. They come in and you say, hey, let's talk about it. What happened? Well, she never blah, 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 blah. And before you know it, the husband begins to say, it's all about her. This is what she does. This is the problem. So you look at the wife and say, well, what do you think? She says, oh, it's all his fault. He never appreciates me. I cook, clean, wash his blue jeans. He never says thank you. All right, that's, that's the typical stuff you're going to hear, right? So you're going to hear something like that, and it's going to go on and on and on. And then I just sometimes stop and say, you know what? I, I know exactly what your problem is. And they say, you do? And I say, yeah, open up to James 4. So we'll open up. Why don't you turn there with me? James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. You know where I'm going, right? But here's the idea. One person in their mind is convinced the problem is the other person. The other person in their mind is convinced that the problem is the other person. And so what we need to understand is what James chapter four, verses one and two says. I said, you know, I'll say, hey, I know exactly why you quarrel and fight all the time. I know exactly what the crux of your communication problem is, right? Because so many people come in, well, we just have trouble communicating. We just can't communicate. We're always arguing. I know why. Here's what the Bible says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Isn't that a great question? We're about to diagnose what's going on in the heart. What is the problem? Is it the other person? Surely it must be. Well, according to this verse, is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. Where does the Bible put the blame on verse 1? You got a problem. You are convinced it's my wife's problem. She doesn't respect me like she should. And so we're having major problems in our marriage. No, not, not according to the Bible. The problem's you. You wanted something so bad that you didn't get it. Then when you didn't get what you wanted, you began to respond out of anger or bitterness or words that cut to the heart because you weren't getting what you wanted. Verse 2 says, you desire and do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So you say, well, I haven't murdered anybody. Well, according to Christ, you have. Right? The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You've heard it said, anyone who commits murder, uh, you know, is in sin. But I tell you that anybody who has been angry at his brother has already committed a murder. 
uh, in your heart, right? So the idea here is that, guys, this is what's going on in our heart. And what's going on in our world today is the popular Christian psychology for marital counseling is what's called love and respect. Anybody heard of it? Love and respect. It's a book. It's a conference. It's Christian psychology. Now, I'm not here to try to throw uh, stones in one regard. I'm just here because I, I think it's important that we understand this concept. And so generally speaking, the idea of love and respect would be this. Oh, well, psychology research shows that the biggest need for the husband is to be respected. That's what he needs more than anything else. And so women, wives, if you'll respect your husband like he needs to be respected, then he'll love you like you need to be loved. Because the woman's greatest desire would be to be loved. I need to be loved. I need to be appreciated. I need to be romanced. I need somebody to appreciate who I am and what I do all day. Now, let me ask you something. Is there anything wrong with a man wanting to be respected? Anything wrong with that? Is that a sinful desire to, for a man to honestly want his wife to respect him? Absolutely not. That, if I guess an appropriate desire, the Bible talks about it in Ephesians 5, 33, right? See to it that each woman respects her husband. The whole passage talks about a, a husband should love his wife like Christ loved the church. And the wife should see to it that she submits to and respects her husband. So there's nothing wrong with a husband wanting to be respected and for a wife wanting to be loved. But what's the problem? The problem is when they want that so bad that when they don't get it, they respond sinfully. So let's say that the wife's not respecting the husband. She does whatever she wants, and she doesn't really ask him, talk with him, communicate with him, and she purposely does things that she knows he disagrees with, so she's not respecting him. Does that give him a right to say, Woman, come here, and pull her by the hair, and drag her back into the cave and pull out a club? Does that give, her, does that give him the, the, the right? Does that give him the right to do that? Of course of course, that's pretty rare. It happens, right, in our culture, so we shouldn't laugh too much about it. But that's kind of like what we act like, right? That's what we act like with our words and how we react. We start to say, hey, look, this is the way it is. I'm the head of the house. God's called you to submit to me. And it's like, whoa, whoa, time out, big guy. Time out. The problem right now is you. Your desire is so strong to get what you want, and you're not getting it. That you're now lashing out sinfully by saying things that you ought not say. And it's certainly not out of a loving heart for your wife. The same is true for the wife to respond in a similar way. And so what I'm saying is simply this. What if the wife is told, hey, if you love your husband and you love your husband, you'll have a better marriage. Well, what if she does that or respects her husband, respects her husband? What if he continues to sin against her? Then if we're not careful, that horizontal focus can uh, it's possible it can never get better so what i'm saying is what we try to do in biblical counseling is first say ma'am you got to look to christ you got to look to christ to fill that desire you have to be loved because let me tell you this your husband will never fully fill it i mean the idea is that you have this cup this is an illustration that's used a lot right you have this love cup and, and, and the cup's half empty because you're not getting the love that you need. So your love is half empty. You, you're asking that husband to pour more love in. And once your cup gets to overflowing, then you can respect him like you want. I would say that there's some truth there, but that's a secondary application. The primary application has to be, I'm looking to Christ. I'm looking to Christ to fill my love cup. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, 
That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If my husband never, ever, ever loves me like he should, I'm going to be okay. Because my only true need is to be saved and to be forgiven and to be one with Jesus Christ. And if I demand a husband who loves me in the way I think he ought to, and even in the way the Bible commands him to, in order to show him respect, then I now am in sin because I'm not responding in a loving, God-honoring way. So the idea is that we first have to look to Christ, to which we can promise that person, if you look to Christ, you will find satisfaction in Christ, whether your marriage changes or not. Now, with that comes secondary application of, sir, you need to love her like Christ loved the church. Ma'am, you need to respect your husband. And we get very practical in talking about all those helpful horizontal applications. But if you take it away from the vertical application of the gospel, then there's really no hope. Because now your hope is in what? The other person changing instead of in Christ. And if your hope is contingent on the other person changing and they don't change, then you're like a fish out of water. You are up the creek. You'll never get better. But if your focus is on Christ and on his glory, then you could be filled and satisfied and contented because of Jesus. And so once we've identified these problems a little bit more clearly, then we can ask the second question. Well, how do you destroy the idols of the heart? And I'll just have to give these to you quickly and you can do a little work on your own if you want to mind down on this. But here's four ways that you can destroy that idol of wanting something too bad in your heart, you could do it like this. Number one, it's repentance, right? First of all, you've got to repent from your heart. God, would you change my heart and change my attitude? I have been a bitter old man and I want to be gracious and giving. Secondly, after repenting, you've got to perform some radical amputation from your life. So you've got to be willing to burn some bridges, to break off some relationships, to stop some bad habits by just getting it completely out of your life. Christ talks about plucking out your eye, cutting out your hand. C, you've got to renew your mind. There's got to be renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's where the counselor and the word of God is being put into your mind. Lastly, you've got to replace sinful habits, the replacement of sinful habits with godly ones. And so this is where we get very horizontal, talking about, hey, look, first it's about the gospel, it's about Christ, it's about understanding this. Now that we've got that, now we can do some of the practical, look, you've got to stop these bad habits and you've got to put on new ones. The Bible says, put off your old self and put on the new self. And there's lots of practical ways that we can help people grow in their marriage and to help do that. And so lastly, let me just talk fourthly about last main point implementation of biblical counseling how do we do this just practically so you get a big picture the first thing we try to do is get to know the person sometimes in secular psychology they don't really want to get to know you they want to maintain a a professional client relationship remember again what about bob did he want him to come on vacation with him absolutely not biblical counselors take their counselees on vacation just kidding. I'm just kidding. But the idea is the idea is you, you got to get to know them by spending some time. If there's no such thing as like you're there and I'm here. It's like, hey, bro, you're my brother in Christ. I'm here to help you pray with you. We'll invite you over to our house. I'm happy to meet you guys where you are because I want to get to know you and what's going on. Secondly, we could say that it's about getting information. And this is where we ask a plethora of questions to get a good history about what's really going on. Proverbs 18 is very clear 
about um, getting both sides of the story. So if you're just questioning one person, but you're not getting the other side, the Bible says basically you're being a fool. If you give an answer before you hear both sides of the story, that's extremely important as you're gathering information. Third, you want to get to the bottom of it. And this is where you begin to help them identify what are the true idols of the heart. For example, the man comes in and he's like, well, I struggle with anger. I'm just mad all the time. I'm yelling at my wife, yelling at my kids. I struggle with anger. To which I say, hey, I can see that you do. Let's ask some questions. Let's ask some questions about what's, what's behind that. It may, be, it may be that the reason he's angry is because he doesn't make as much money as the Joneses. And his family's always asking him, when are we going to buy the new car or the new bike? And every time they ask the question, he feels inadequate as not being a provider to the degree that this family unit wants to live on. And so then he gets angry. So what's the problem? Is it anger? Or is he desiring maybe too much materialism? You know, you know what I'm saying? So the idea is you got to get down a little bit deeper, say this might be the problem. And then you're responding out of anger. That's what I mean by getting to the bottom of it. It's helping them identify what is the true idol of the heart. And then that's when you forth give instruction. Once you've analyzed the problem, you help explain it to the counselees so they can see it for what it really is. You begin to instruct them. Just like a good physician or a pharmacist knows exactly what medicine to prescribe in order to help with a particular illness, a good counselor has to know the exact passages of scripture that would help be particular to the problem of the counselee. So the better you know the Bible, the better of a counselor you will be. And in fifth, you want to give hope. The idea is like, you know what? There is hope for your situation. No matter what's going on, no matter how bad you've been abused, no matter what your past is, no matter what your present is, you can have hope. It's about looking to a living person. His name is Christ. And even if he doesn't change your circumstances or your situation, he wants to change you. It's about changing your perspective. You might still be in the thick of it, but if your perspective changes, all of a sudden you begin to develop a little hope. And then six, we try to get a commitment. Counseling is about seeing them more than once, but contrary to popular psychology, we don't usually see them for years. In other words, some psychologists are like, well, this is going to take three years to get you out of this one. We typically would see people from eight to 12 weeks, teach the main biblical principles on their issue, and then say, look, we're going to kick you out of the nest. You guys got to live this out. Now, with that in mind, I see a lot of people longer than 12 weeks. And sometimes they come back regularly, and that's fine too. I'm just saying the general principle is we want to teach them, and then we want to see them implement it, and then we encourage them to move on and then hold themselves accountable with God's word, right? And then the the last one is give homework. If you're not giving homework, then you're not aiding them to help in the growing process over time. For example, if you want to learn a new language, you want to learn Spanish, and uh, you show up to Spanish class one hour, once a week, and you don't do any homework, between the Spanish class, how much Spanish are you going to learn? How long is it going to take you to learn it? A long time. I mean, how much Spanish are you going to be speaking 10 years later? Poquito, right? Just a little bit. So, I mean, the idea is you got to do your homework. So we give homework. So the idea, people come in, we talk, we say, hey, look, this is your homework. I need you to read this chapter of scripture or, or passage or several passages. I need you to pray 10 minutes a day and we'll teach them how to pray about that particular problem. I need you to memorize this verse that talks about how God's using this trial to conform you into the image of Christ. I want you to read this chapter out of a good biblical counseling book that's on this topic. And then I want you to do something practical. It may be, let's log down every argument you have this week. And as you write down the time and the content of the argument, let's talk about what 
what you contributed to the argument and based on James 4, 1 and 2, what desire did you have that caused you to enter into this argument? And let's talk about it next week. So they come in and they're like, wow, we realize now every time we argue, it's about the in-laws. Or every time we argue, it's about money. Or every time we argue, it's about the fact I'm demanding this. And uh, so the idea is that it helps us identify a little closer what it is that we're working on. And it's so neat to see the counselee kind of see it themselves. Then they begin to diagnose their own situation, right? So let's go to the take home. Just a couple of applications real quick. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is admonish someone else. Again, we live in a politically correct society where it says you can't tell anybody they're doing anything wrong. The Bible says we're to warn, instruct, confront one another. That's true love. Number two, you must be filled with the knowledge of God's word in order to properly instruct someone else. You got to know God's word in order to help others know God's word. And then number three, identifying idols of the heart and crushing them by the power of Christ in our heart should become a daily habit. Guys, this isn't like an epiphany of once a year you start to look at idols. Every day you should be examining and asking Christ to help you identify idols in your heart and then crush them so that you can become more like Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the patience of our congregation this morning as we go over uh, here just to make sure we have an adequate and a uh, biblical view of what counseling is all about. God, I pray that you would help us all grow and change to become more like Christ, that we would always be dependent on the word of God, and that you would do a great work starting with me and working on our elders and our deacons and our small group leaders. I pray for every marriage and every young person that you would help us to take to heart what your word says about growing and changing and becoming more like Christ. Would you bless our counseling center as we formally kick this off? Would you help us as a church body to be really invested in our prayers and serving time and loving people as they come to our body? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.